Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. This is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams, New York Post, Cindy Adams. I'm in the paper Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I am on our beloved WABC every Sunday, 1 to 2. I have a couple of stories I want to tell you. First of all, there is a story I had in the New York Post, and I'm going to tell you about it. Rupert Murdoch, of whom you may have heard, he is professionally the parent of Earth's media. He is personally the creator of new news himself this week. He is celebrating his nativity this month with a new scoop. Rupert Murdoch is getting married again. But first, we discuss the important stuff like his bride-to-be. She got an Asher-cut diamond solitaire, which the almost groom personally selected, And he says to me, I am one-fourth Irish. And he presented the ring to her on St. Pat's Day in our very own New York City. So I said, well, why are you getting married, Rupert? And he said, look, I was very nervous, I admit it. I dreaded falling in love again, but I knew this would be my last. It better be but I am happy. And she is a former San Francisco police chaplain. Her name is Anne Leslie Smith. She is 66. Her late husband was Chester Smith, a country singer on radio and TV. And she says, For us both, it's a gift from God. We met last September. Okay, Rupert on meeting at his vineyard in Bel Air, California, says she and her husband also owned a vineyard and had been in the wine business, and that's how we met. Last year, when there was 200 people at my vineyard, I met her, and we talked a bit. Two weeks later, he told me I called her. So me, steeped in wisdom... I said, yeah, okay. But today, it's all about couples just living together. No no ceremony. Who bothers half the time? That's the new trend. In Hollywood, they even iron out the divorce settlement before rushing ahead with any wedding. So the groom-to-be told me, look, we are both looking forward to spending the second half of our lives together. The wedding will be late September, no, late summer. Besides a personal shopper, friends are scouring shops and designer for Anne's gown. They will spend the time between California, the UK, Montana, and New York. Rupert Murdoch appeared so happy that somehow I didn't think it was the right moment 
for me to ask him for a raise. <laughs> okay, I think it's funny, even if you don't. So meanwhile, in other news, there have been rumors that a priest in Washington, D.C. said, the Lord is planning a miracle. Right afterward, we also heard that Joe Biden could walk up the stairs to his plane and right afterwards chew gum at the same time. Okay, we are now going onward. And now I want to tell you about a show that opened this week. It was courtesy of Andrew Lloyd Webber. He is, as you know, a sir, a lord, a winner of Grammys, Emmys, Oscars, Tonys, Olivier's, and he's been asked to maybe whip up King Charles' coronation music. And he has, as we all know, created such treasures as Phantom of the Opera, Cats and Vita, School of Rock, Sunset Boulevard, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. His newest musical, Bad Cinderella, opened this week at Broadway's Imperial. He told me, but I won't be there to see my show, and he wasn't. He said, I won't even be able to be in New York, and he wasn't. He has been to every single opening of his own on Broadway and on the West End, and he's the only one to ever miss any of his openings. Why? Because he told me, the first thing is, I am a father. Yes, yeah, so, so what does this mean? I didn't understand. He was in London, we were on the phone, and he spoke to me of losing his eldest son. From the mouth of Andrew, he says, I adored, I still adore, Nicholas. He's my eldest son. He's been my rock, my anchor. A talented musician, he writes great music and has a great sense of humor. He was an enormous help to me during lockdown when we were making our Cinderella album. He's now been moved to a nearby hospice. This weekend, I keep thinking of him because I am losing him. Said Andrew to me, the cancer goes up and down one day to the other. He came through this weekend and I went to see him this morning. But even today, he is very ill. He still smiled and he said, I hope your show goes well. Nicholas has a wife, a year-old son. He has so much to live for. There was a moment of pause, and then Andrew, on the phone from London, said to me, Look, I have done my life. I would change places with him at this moment. Were that possible? 
He said, we love him. We all love him. Our whole family's been together. My wife, Madeline, has been very supportive. We're all together here, right now, at home, and will be the entire weekend. My three kids regard Nicholas as their brother. I cannot believe what he's been through. He has been through 30 rounds of chemo. The creation of Bad Cinderella, the show which opened this week in New York, has been a very long project. So why didn't he push back the Broadway opening? He said, you can't. There is no point. You can't delay it a week, because how do you know if Nicholas will rally for a whole week? And then if you do it for two weeks, how do you know he will be there for two weeks? It goes back one week, it goes back the next week. You can't tell when is a good time. He is very weak. He is able to speak, but he is very ill. He is sedated while I'm visiting him. Saturday night, he said, last Saturday night, my eldest child went on the critical list. He knows he's not going anywhere. He's in his senses. But the condition seems to go its own way and own time. About the Cinderella opening, he said only, I don't want to speak about that. My peace can only be with my son. I won't change place, I can't change places with him, or I would. Okay, I was at the opening this week. The show is not great. I do not know if the show will last. The problem is, he was writing this while he was tending his son, and so it may not have been the best output of Andrew Lloyd Webber, and you can understand that. The show's leading lady, a beautiful lady by the name of Linady Ganeo, she's of Dominican extraction, came to my home wearing a red cashmere sweater. It was emblazoned with the words, Bad Cinderella. I was then handed a similar red cashmere sweater. Only mine had the words inscribed, Bad Cindy. I don't know if I'm going to wear it very often. So, even if neither of us wore them the evening the show opened, we hope you will go to the Imperial and you will see the show at the theater, even though I have told you it's not really great. However, Andrew Lloyd Webber is great, and his daughter Imogen did the honors for opening night. Lord Lloyd of Sidmonton, as he is also known, his newest musical, after a run in London's West End, came here, and we can only pray for his son, Nicholas, and for his new show. After a run in New York, it is going to be going onward. We wish it and Andrew and Nicholas luck and love. 
and that's it about the show. So maybe I'll go on to something else. I would like to go on to tell you about our governor. If you are meeting our governor, pay attention, kiddies. Be on time. Big Ben may be off for a few seconds. Hokel, not. Ours was an early five o'clock dinner. On the curb, an aide awaited her black SUV, which pulled up four minutes to five sharp. We were seated at two minutes to five. I was there at the table. Figuring this was going to be a busy evening, I decided it was best after dinner to do the John. Being I already knew where all my varying parts are, this operation did not take me long. But seconds later, after I went into the John, Her Excellency had already left our table, brushed breadcrumbs off her skirt, answered a cell phone, crossed the entire restaurant to get to the ladies' room door, and was standing right outside it, awaiting me when I exited. Not even a moose in heat can move quicker. Now, the SUV, we sat in her SUV, the back seat was repair time. Compact, powder, lipstick, mirror, comb. 7 p.m. was to be a speech at the Metropolitan Museum, which was why we had early 5 o'clock dinner. Aids pile into the car. 6.45, I had to pull up with them all to its VIP entrance. There was no time to talk politics, not even about Joe Biden. By now, I was wiped. I had to drive myself home. The SUB's backseat was repair time. She got there in time, but out in time. We did everything in time. And I want to tell you, the governor is an exhausting experience. (sighs) Now... One more thing. Then and then I'm going to get on to my interview, but I have to tell you something. March 24, a train is pulling in, or it pulled in. Morgan Freeman said, when I was a kid, the Lionel train set was the most popular gift you could give a kid. I wanted one. I never got one. The only thing in my entire life I wanted and didn't get. So I understand the push to play with trains. The movie is called A Good Person. It stars Morgan and Florence Pugh. Tragedy throws them together, also toy trains. It's a New Jersey trauma. It inspired Freeman to remember something from his childhood, and in between it, he said to me, I play an ex-cop, an alcoholic, trying to preside over a bunch of dysfunctional people. It was written and directed by actor Zach Braff. Now, one more thing. Lawyer, Stuart Slotnick. He and his client had dinner. The client ordered a burger plus a filet mignon. Rare. 
he figured maybe he could have raised his fee since she was obviously a rich, classy eater. The client inhaled her burger fast. She then carefully wrapped up the package of filet mignon, put it into a shopping bag, and took it home. When she got home, she fed it to her dog. You should know this is the way some of the people in New York City live. I'd like to do a little two minutes about pig dog brag, whom I'd like to gag. Our DA lets out felons and killers. Our country lets Biden bums hide and slide. And listen, some of them should let the feds swan around Delaware. There's lots of juice you can get there. I am just saying that partisan politics does this to a former president of the United States of America. How about they didn't do anything to Clinton, JFK, Eisenhower, or a couple of other presidents whose habits I also know? A martyr in the eyes of his followers, a mouth that opens, a country with masses of no respect, like him, don't like him, like Donald, don't like him. Who cares? You don't do such against a former president. It's a mistake, a conviction, doubtful. What is this country coming to? What are we, Iran, Syria, Russia? That's it for me at the moment. I'm going to take a station break, and then I'm going to come back and do a very good and juicy interview. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. I'm about to speak to my longtime friend, Jeanette Walls. I knew her as a fellow Scribner. She was a New York journalist along with me and gave it up 15 years ago to write the best, best seller memoir, The Glass Castle. It was on the bestseller list for over a year. It was in 35 languages. It made a movie. My God, I mean, you made so much money. Can you now tell me about this new book that you've just done, Hang the Moon? Tell me about it. Well, Cindy, it's fictional, and it's my first real fiction book. I've written a couple of other books that were labeled fiction, but you know, you and I being journalists, we cling to the truth and facts. And this time I went way out and it's all made up, except that it's kind of based on true historical characters. It's based a hundred years ago during prohibition. It's about a tough girl during rough times, uh, uh, Sally Kincaid, and she, it's during prohibition and she becomes a rum runner. 
Okay, I understand it's fiction. I know it's from Scribner's. I know it's. I know what you've done, basically. But how did you get the gizzard to write this when it's not a world in which you have lived? Well, um, you know, my father uh, was a moonshine runner, and my grandmother was as well, so it's kind of in my blood. Um, I also, I became fascinated with Prohibition when I was a little girl, because I learned about this long-ago time when it was illegal to drink liquor. My dad was a raging alcoholic, and I told my mom, I wanted to live during Prohibition, and she said, oh, no, you didn't. It was a disaster. (laughs) It was a complete debacle. People actually drank more during Prohibition than they did during it. Crime went up. The only thing Prohibition did is it made the price of booze more expensive and the quality uh, go down. So it was it was a fascinating thing to go back and look at this time a hundred years ago and see how sometimes you know we, uh, these well intended people who genuinely thought that prohibition was going to stop uh, drinking and consequently stop crime, and it had exactly the opposite reaction. Okay, how do you get the history behind this? First of all, <laughs> did you have a personal memory anywhere of some of it? Um, well, certainly not firsthand of prohibition, but, you know, there are still a lot of places that are, are dry. But yeah. I am a research nerd. I completely love going into the books and finding this stuff out. And I read court transcripts. I live in Virginia now, and one of the neighboring counties was known as the wettest county in the world. They made more moonshine than any other place in the world. And um, they also had the longest trial in Virginia's history um, because not only was a lot of moonshine made, but it was being made and distributed by the local law because there wasn't enough um, lawmen to enforce. There wasn't enough state law people to enforce prohibition. So it was largely based on county to county. And in Franklin County, the, the lawmen were involved with it directly. So a lot of Hang the Moon is based on that um, that county. Okay, a long time ago, uh, I was asked to write a book, a, f- a fictional book, and I tried it. And they said I had to write all the characters. I had to write a first chapter, and I had to give them an index. Well, I did all that, and they looked at it, and they said, you can't write. So that's <laughs> that. That's the two different things, being what we do and what you are now doing. So how long did it take to do this book? Cindy, it is so different. It is so different. And I had no idea how different it was. And I kept on clinging to the truth and the facts and things that happened. And my editor had to pry my my bony little fingers off the facts and say, no, you've got to make it up. Now, I come from a family of liars and fibbers and people who had a casual relationship to the truth. And I think that's one of the reasons that I went into journalism is trying to stick to the facts, stick to the truth. And it was quite the leap for me. And that's why it took seven or eight years for me to write this thing, to to understand that fictionalizing things and being a liar are different things. It, it, it kind of felt the same. It was like, you know, but, but I, I can't just make it up. And my editor said, that's what fiction is, Jeanette. But that being said, I did keep on turning to real-life characters. Like there was a woman in Virginia, in this Franklin County, who she was known as the best pilot, the best um, driver of moonshine um, runs of any 
human being, man or woman, in the county, in the surrounding counties. Her name was Willie Carter Sharp, and um, she got shot at all the time, but she was just fierce. So a lot of the main character, Sally Kincaid, is based on her. Give me just a history, quickly, of what, how does it go? How does the book go? What is the trajectory of the book? (laughs) You know, Cindy, I had to read the other day a paragraph from it, and I couldn't find a paragraph that didn't give away the plot. So, (laughs) What do you care what it gives away? We're going to make you people buy the book and read it. Tell me a little bit. I don't even know the story. Okay. Sally Kincaid was born into a very wealthy family, and then she got booted from the family. Um, because of a scandal, and she came back when she was 17. And she idealized this family. She, her father was the most important person in this county. And when she comes back, she has to kind of come to terms with some of the things that she believed in that aren't necessarily true. And, you know, she bought into the myth of that the Kincaids are better than everybody else, and that helped her get it through some tough times. But... It, there was also a downside to that. She didn't realize that the suffering going on. She, one of the things about Sally is that she's underestimated because she's a woman during those times. And maybe because she was underestimated or maybe because she went up and lived in the mountains and had to tough things out. She, um, she is a real can-do kind of gal. She just doesn't let things scare her. She just does what needs to be done. And she progresses very far in the, uh, the business of moonshine, which is not only a men's world, but it's an illegal world. So how long did it take to knock this off? Because the last one you wrote was the biggest bestseller since the Bible. <laughs> so how long did it take you to knock this one off? I spent about seven or eight years on this thing, depending on when you want to start it. I I really immersed myself in the um and the research, and among the things I had to research is, for example, a lot of curse words that we use now uh, weren't around back in Sally's day. And I realized that my curse words that I all use um, are from my father. It's like, gosh, I hope I can say a curse word on your on your show. It's not that bad, but dumbass. It's my favorite. It's my go-to curse word, and it, it wasn't around in Sally's day. So I just I tried very very hard to make sure that it was realistic and believable. Because I think that with fiction, you, you bring the reader into this world, and if something starts happening and it's like, oh, this would have never happened back then, then you lose the reader. So that's one of the things that took me as long as it did. Oh, dumbass is a word we all use. In fact, I use it for the people I'm working with. Don't worry about it. So tell me now. First, now let's get back to your lifestyle. You used to live amongst us. You were a New Yorker. What the hell is it like to live in downtown Virginia? (laughs) Tell me. I was a a Park Avenue gal. Oh, sorry. Tell me what it was like. (laughs) I I thought I would never leave New York. I went out in my power suits and my great big old hair and my great big old earrings, and I just loved it. And it was my husband wanted to live in Virginia. And I thought, why would I live anywhere other than New York? It's the greatest city in the world. Um, but his dad lived in Washington, D.C., and he wanted to be kind of close to his father in his golden years. So he dragged me down there kicking and screaming. And the truth is I kind of love it. My inner my inner hillbilly is out. And, um, you know, I got I got four horses. I got ten chickens. I, you know, I got a great big old farm. So I'm, I'm very, very happy. And I tell myself, oh, why did I ever live in New York? And then I come back and I fall in love all over again. Yeah, well, it's a real mazel tov to live amongst all the animals. I understand that. I got one in my house. That's a little five-pound five Yorkie, and it's enough. But don't you ever want to come back 
to a real city instead of living in the bluegrass, <laughs> wherever the hell it is? Don't you want to come back to us? Well, I come back from time to time. But, Cindy, the truth is, when I'm in New York, I feel like I feel like I'm visiting an old boyfriend with whom I split amicably. Oh. I will always love New York. It's always in my heart. But boy, am I glad I moved on. You know, you were born here. I wasn't. I was born out in the boondocks, and I put on the shiny suits and the shiny earrings for a long time. But I always felt like I had a green card there. I always felt like I was a visitor. Well, who are your friends? Who the hell do you go to dinner with? Uh, 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 what, a chicken layer? Who do you go? Who are your friends? I one of my very best friends is a construction worker. Another oh one is somebody. Oh my god! Another one. <laughs> another one is the deputy sheriff. Um, I, I also have a billionaire friend down there. But I got to tell you, it makes for good fiction. It makes for good fiction knowing these people out who struggle in a way that. That New Yorkers don't. I mean, New Yorkers worry about things that people in the hinterland don't, and vice versa. So, you know, it's, I, I gotta say, I think that fiction writers don't make things up as often as they do, as often as they steal things from real life, you know, that these, these characters who are out there. So it's very good for fiction writing. It's not so good for Broadway, okay? It's not so good if you want to be going to plays and stuff like that. But um, but I'm I'm extremely happy. And, yeah, I love New York. I come back for the book. I come back to see my editor. I come back from time to time. But, you know, the truth is I'm a hit. Okay, you oh, know. Boo, 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 boo to you. Boo, boo, boo to you. Boo, boo. Tell me about your husband. He's a writer. Did he help? Did he help in this at all? He was amazing. I couldn't have done it without him. Uh, he was there every step of the way. And, um I ha I love research so much, and he loves it less. So I would research something I found fascinating about the various products they used to clean clothes back then or some complicated way to fix a car, and he'd look at it and say, get rid of this. So he was there. And in addition to that, whenever I was really stuck on the dialogue, especially the dialogue for the main character, we would act out the parts. It did, it was, this sounds funny. Wait, 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 wait. You and your husband would, in, at the kitchen table, would act yeah. out moonshining? Yeah, yeah, we would. So he'd, he'd play the Duke, which is Sally's father, or whoever, Sally's boyfriend, and he'd read those lines, and, he, and he'd say, okay, now just react. Just react. And, and so we would act out these parts. And i got to tell you, I learned some of that from when um, The Glass Castle was made into a movie, watching these incredible actors tap into these characters who are my family, crazy family members, who they'd never met, and they would go off script. I mean, it was just so fascinating to me how these people, these actors, would get inside the head of people they'd never met. And it was very informative for the, the whole process of fiction writing. Um, you know, Woody Allen, who played—I mean, Woody Woody Harrelson, my goodness, Woody Harrelson, who played my father. He, uh, yeah, I know, real slip there, huh? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Woody oh God, you're losing it. You're losing it. Too much Virginia. I a long time ago, honey. <laughs> okay, go ahead, go. Woody Harrelson would—he—he'd um, go off script sometimes, and he'd say things that my father had said that I hadn't told him, or and he'd stay in character. Um, and Naomi Watts played my mother, and uh, they would stay in character and would be going out to dinner, and they'd start fighting. And it was just, it was so interesting to me how these actors inhabited other people's 
characters and personalities. And I think that that's kind of what fiction is. Fiction is it's an act of empathy and putting yourself in other people's situations and other people's uh, heads. And I think that I'm more qualified than most people to write about somebody who lived 100 years ago because of the way I was raised. I was raised in southern West Virginia without indoor plumbing. Uh, we Our house was wired for electricity, but we usually didn't pay the bills. So I grew up mostly without electricity. So I understand what it feels like not to have these modern conveniences. And I also understand the miracle of what it's like to finally get something like electricity or flush toilets. It's wonderful. And so that's that's the world uh, that Sally was living in 100 years ago with this incredible transformation that took place in places like Virginia where they were moving from uh, the this rural agrarian society into the modern world. And so that's part of the um, the background that Sally's experience in this country that right after World War One was trying to figure out who it was. Sally's also trying to figure out who she is with this rich father, this powerful father, who doesn't always follow the rules in a society that doesn't always follow the rules because everybody ignored prohibition. Everybody just sort of, you know, they made, they made whiskey or they brought it in from the Bahamas or whatever. And everybody was breaking the law and people had to figure out what is right and what is wrong. And that's, that's Sally's journey, figuring out what is right and what is wrong. Okay. I got to figure out what's a day in your life like with tractors and computers <laughs> and animals and goats or whatever the hell else you got there. What's, what's your, what's your life like? Um, I feed the critters first thing in the morning. I go out oh. and feed the chickens. Yes, I do. I oh take my, my God. hands okay. off. All right. Okay. Your story, <laughs> your story is really, oh, please leave me alone. Your story has touched my heart. I'm going to actually. Read this book. Now, tell me, you are going to be in New York selling it somewhere. You're going to be speaking about it. Where? When? Barnes & Noble downtown. Where It's going to be the where this going to be the first um, event in the whole event is the Barnes & Noble. And um, then I'm going to be going across the country on the East Coast. And then uh, I'm going to be doing a six-week tour. And we're going to be flogging it all over the place. And what are you going to do with the money you get? I buy more chickens. Oh, get off. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't even want to eat your chickens. I don't want to. I want to see you and hug you and love you. That's all I want to do. You might not want to eat my chickens. My eggs are good. The eggs are good, though. i got to tell you. Are they cheaper than they are in New York? Uh, They're free. (laughs) (laughs) They're cheaper. Get off the phone. And I love you. I love you. I love you, Cindy. (laughs) Thank you, baby. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you. Bye. And they said I had to write all the characters. I had to write a first chapter. And I had to give them an index. Well, I did all that, and they looked at it, and they said, you can't write. So that's <laughs> that. That's the two different things, being what we do and what you are now doing. So how long did it take to do this book? Cindy, it is so different. It is so different, and I had no idea how different it was. And I kept on clinging to the truth and the facts and things that happened. And my editor had to pry my my bony little fingers off the facts and say, no, you've got to make it up. Now, I come from a family of liars and fibbers and people who had casual relationship to the truth. And I think that's one of the reasons that I went into journalism is trying to stick to the facts, stick to the truth. And it was quite the leap for me. And that's why it took seven or eight years for me to write this thing, to to understand that fictionalizing things 
and being a liar are different things. It, it, it kind of felt the same. It's like, you know, but, but I, I can't just make it up. And my editor said, that's what fiction is, Jeanette. But that being said, I did keep on turning to real-life characters. Like, there was a woman in Virginia, in this Franklin County, who she was known as the best pilot, the best um, driver of moonshine um, runs of any human being, man or woman, in the county, and the surrounding counties. Her name was Willie Carter Sharp, and um, she got shot at all the time, but she was just fierce. So a lot of the main character, Sally Kincaid, is based on her. Give me just a history, quickly, of what, how does it go? How does the book go? What is the trajectory of the book? <laughs> you know, Cindy, I had to read the other day a paragraph from it, and I couldn't find a paragraph that didn't give away the plot. So, I, <laughs> What do you care what it gives away? We're going to make you people buy the book and read it. Tell me a little bit. I don't I'll even know the story. Bit. Okay. Sally Kincaid was born into a very wealthy family, and then she got booted from the family um, because of a scandal, and she came back when she was 17. And she idealized this family. She, her father was the most important person in this county. And when she comes back, she has to kind of come to terms with some of the things that she believed in that aren't necessarily true. And, you know, she bought into the myth of that the Kincaids are better than everybody else. And that helped her get it through some tough times. But it, there was also a downside to that. She didn't realize that the suffering going on. She... One of the things about Sally is that she's underestimated because she's a woman during those times. And maybe because she was underestimated or maybe because she went up and lived in the mountains and had to tough things out, she, um, she is a real can-do kind of gal. She just doesn't let things scare her. She just does what needs to be done. And she progresses very far in the, uh, the business of moonshine, which is not only a men's world, but it's an illegal world. So how long did it take? To knock this off, because the last one you wrote was the biggest bestseller since the Bible. <laughs> so how long did it take you to knock this one off? I spent about seven or eight years on this thing, depending on when you want to start it. I, I really immersed myself in the, um, in the research. And among the things I had to research is, for example, a lot of curse words that we use now uh, weren't around back in Sally's day. And I realized that my curse words that I all use um, are from my father. It's like, gosh, I hope I can say a curse word on your on your show. It's not that bad, but dumbass. It's my favorite. It's my go-to curse word. And it, it wasn't around in Sally's day. So I just, I tried very, very hard to make sure that it was realistic and believable. Because I think that with fiction, you, you bring the reader into this world. And if something starts happening and it's like, oh, this would have never happened back then, then you lose the reader. So that's one of the things that took me as long as it did. Oh, dumbass is a word we all use. In fact, I use it for the people I'm working with. Don't worry about it. So tell me now. First, now let's get back to your lifestyle. You used to live amongst us. You were a New Yorker. What the hell is it like to live in downtown Virginia? Tell me. I was a a Park Avenue gal. Oh, sorry. Tell me what it was like. I was, I thought I would never leave New York. I went out in my power suits and my great big old hair and my great big old earrings, and I just loved it. And it was my husband wanted to live in Virginia. 
And I thought, I said, why would I live anywhere other than New York? It's the greatest yeah. city in the world. Um, but his dad lived in Washington, D.C., and he wanted to be kind of close to his father in his golden years. So he dragged me down there kicking and screaming. And the truth is, I kind of love it. My inner my inner hillbilly is out. And, um, you know, I got I got four horses. I got ten chickens. I, you know, I got a great big old farm. So I'm I'm very, very happy. And I tell myself... Oh, why did I ever live in New York? And then I come back and I fall in love all over again. Yeah, well, it's a real mazel tov to live amongst all the animals. I understand that. I got one in my house that's a little five-pound five Yorkie, and it's enough. But don't you ever want to come back to a real city instead of living in the bluegrass, <laughs> wherever the hell it is? Don't you want to come back to us? Well, I come back from time to time. But, Cindy, the truth is, when I'm in New York, I feel like, I feel like I'm visiting an old boyfriend with whom I split amicably. Oh. I will always love New York. It's always in my heart. But boy, am I glad I moved on. You know, you were born here. I wasn't. I was born out in the boondocks. And I put on the shiny suits and the shiny earrings for a long time. But I always felt like I had a green card there. I always felt like I was a visitor. Well, who are your friends? Who the hell do you go to dinner with? Uh, 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 what, a chicken layer? Who do you go? Who are your friends? I, one of my very best friends is a construction worker. Another oh God. one is somebody. Oh my God. Another one, <laughs> another one is the deputy sheriff. Um, I, I also have a billionaire friend down there. But I gotta tell you, it makes for good fiction. It makes for good fiction knowing these people out who struggle in a way that that New Yorkers don't. I mean, New Yorkers worry about things that people in the hinterland don't, and vice versa. So, you know, it's. I, I got to say, I think that fiction writers don't make things up as often as they do, as often as they steal things from real life. You know, that these these characters who are out there. So it's very good for fiction writing. It's not so good for Broadway. Okay, it's not so good if you want to be going to plays and stuff like that. But um, but I'm I'm extremely happy. And yeah, I love New York. I come back. For the book, I come back to see my editor. I come back from time to time. But you know, the truth is, I'm a hit. Look, okay, oh, you know, boo, 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 boo to you, boo, boo, boo to you, boo, boo. Tell me about your husband. He's a writer. Did he help? Did he help in this at all? He was amazing. I couldn't have done it without him. Uh, he was there every step of the way, and um, I ha I love research so much, and he loves it less. So uh, I would research something I found fascinating about the various products they used to clean clothes back then or some complicated way to fix a car and he'd look at it and say get rid of this so he was there and in addition to that whenever i was really stuck on the dialogue especially the dialogue for the main character we would act out the parts it did, it was, this sounds funny Wait, you, whoa, whoa, whoa. you and your husband would in, at the kitchen table would act yeah. out moonshining yeah yeah we would so he he'd play the Duke, which is Sally's father, or whoever, Sally's boyfriend, he'd read those lines, and, he, and he'd say, okay, now just react. Just react. And, and so we would act out these parts. And i got to tell you, I learned some of that from when um, The Glass Castle was made into a movie, watching these incredible actors tap into these characters who are my family, crazy family members, who they'd never met, and they would go off screen. I mean, it was just so fascinating to me how these people, these actors, would get inside the head of people they'd never met. And it was very informative for the, the whole process of fiction writing. Um, 
you know, Woody Allen, who played, I mean, Woody, Woody Harrelson, my goodness, Woody Harrelson, who played my father. <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, I know, real slip there, huh? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Woody Harrelson. Oh, God, you're losing it. You're losing it. Too much Virginia. I a long time ago, honey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead, go. Woody Harrelson would, um, he, he'd go off script sometimes, and he'd say things that my father had said that I hadn't told him. Or, and he'd stay in character. Um, and Naomi Watts played my mother, and uh, they would stay in character and would be going out to dinner, and they'd start fighting. And it was just, it was so interesting to me how these actors inhabited other people's characters and personalities. And I think that that's kind of what fiction is. Fiction is, it's an act of empathy and putting yourself in other people's situations and other people's uh, heads. And I think that I'm more qualified than most people to write about somebody who lived 100 years ago because of the way I was raised. I was raised in southern West Virginia without indoor plumbing. Uh, we Our house was wired for electricity, but we usually didn't pay the bills. So I grew up mostly without electricity. So I understand what it feels like not to have these modern conveniences. And I also understand the miracle of what it's like to finally get something like electricity or flush toilets. It's wonderful. And so that's, that's the world uh, that Sally was living in 100 years ago with this incredible transformation that took place in places like Virginia where they were moving from the this rural agrarian society into the modern world and so that's part of the um the background that Sally's experienced in this country that right after World War 1 was trying to figure out who it was Sally's also trying to figure out who she is with this rich father this powerful father who doesn't always follow the rules in a society that doesn't always follow the rules because everybody ignored prohibition. Everybody just sort of, you know, they made, they made whiskey or they brought it in from the Bahamas or whatever. And everybody was breaking the law and people had to figure out what is right and what is wrong. And that's, that's Sally's journey, figuring out what is right and what is wrong. Okay. I got to figure out what's a day in your life like with tractors and computers <laughs> and animals and goats or whatever the hell else you got there. What's, what's your, what's your life like? Um, I feed the critters first thing in the morning. I go out oh. and feed the chickens. Yes, I do. I oh take my, my God. hands off okay. the chickens. Right. Okay. Your story, <laughs> your story is really, oh, please leave me alone. Your story has touched my heart. I'm going to actually. Read this book. Now, tell me, you are going to be in New York selling it somewhere. You're going to be speaking about it. Where? When? Barnes & Noble downtown. Where It's going to be the, where, this going to be the first um, event in the whole event is the Barnes & Noble. And um, then I'm going to be going across the country on the East Coast. And then uh, I'm going to be doing a six-week tour. And we're going to be flogging it all over the place. And what are you going to do with the money you get? I buy more chickens. <laughs> oh, get off. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't even want to eat your chickens. I don't want to, I want to see you and hug you and love you. That's all I want oh, okay. to do. You might not want to eat my chickens. My eggs are good. The eggs are good, though. I got to tell you. I are they cheaper than they are in New York? Oh, they're free. <laughs> <laughs> they're cheaper. Get off the phone. And I love you. I love you. I love you, Cindy. <laughs> Thank you, baby. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. For fun, I started this broadcast telling you some of the dumb things that have happened to me. Now, since I'm in the mood, I finish it. And I probably will finish myself off forever. Because now it's about some of the even dumber letters that have been sent to me. If you write a column, you get hit from everybody. A column once got you into a Broadway show. Now there's no Broadway show to get you into. It once got you a table in a restaurant. Now there's no restaurant. You get hit by a bus because they sit you in the street. Now it gets you cranky letters, some of which that come to me begin, Dear Stupid, like Marie from Florida. Ethel Merman, she wrote, once sang Tomorrow Will Be Brighter Than the Good Old Days. That didn't happen. But the Merman story is on computer. You should get it. You should watch it. You should learn what you should write about. You don't know anything. Okay. Georgia from Pennsylvania. I've been in Philly 81 years. It has a history of voter intimidation. When Romney ran for president, when Romney ran for president, 59 Philly precincts reported zero votes for him. That's impossible. Also impossible is some of the stuff you say in the column. Dale from Manhattan, you are over for me. How could you say Biden hasn't faced tragedies? Don't you judge the feelings of loss? Everyone suffers in their own way. Of course, he never mentioned Joe's other son, who's making millions from some schmatas he's drawing on. Then there's Patricia from New Jersey. Quote, your column is always enjoyable. It's the first page I go to. I think you might enjoy yourself if you'd venture out to our home, which is in the woods in New Jersey. Your housekeeper and your driver are also welcome. Yeah, like I'm rushing off to the woods in New Jersey. Susan from Manhattan. I feel like I know you. Your stories are amazing. I am a fan. Your stories are great. People think when I say you're great, they think I'm nuts. I am not nuts. Then there's this one that's unsigned. Quote, you have compliments for the 300-pound orangutan who was in the White House. Orangutan is misspelled. It's no wonder a woman hasn't won the presidency. It's because of stupid writers like you. Then there's Doris in the Bronx that says, Go F yourself. Everyone knows that that scumbag, and then it says other words, had ties to Russia. He'll end up peeing in his pants. This particular valentine was from a blue-lined composition notebook. Then there was Patrick from Brooklyn. I've been reading you for so long, I feel we're old friends. You produced the most entertaining column in New York. Oh, God, I was so happy to have that. It was written only on a postcard. Marion from Brooklyn, you wrote a wonderful column about self-centered people who put poison in their bodies. I thank you for that. Although, truth be told, I don't read you very often. 
Margaret from Suffern. Please keep writing. We love, 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 love you. You are the only one who tells the truth. Truth. Misspelled. I'm surprised they let you. Rocco from Manhattan. I often read you. Fortunately, you are still there, although how much longer you can be, who knows. You may be the last one in existence. Try to keep it up. Shawneen from New York City. I read your housekeeper makes goat curry. In Montego, I had that from a florid-faced Brit who barked nasty to everyone and was Trevor Howard's brother. No wonder he was always angry. A movie star for a brother, and he is slinging hash in sweltering heat. What that had to do with me, I have no idea. Sedell from New York City. You are a main reason I read the post, but in Utica, misspelled Utica, they had an item about a famous couple divorcing. You didn't have that. Why does a Utica paper know something you don't? And Jay from Florida sent a talking Valentine card. It just arrived. And he said the card is available on Amazon. Francine, from I can't read where. God bless you. I read you every day. I love your patriotism. I love your love for New York. You're becoming wonderful, and it's becoming a hellhole. And I love your witty comments about jerks like J-Lo and A-Rod. Yeah, me too. Julie from New Jersey. I just want to say how much I love reading you. Thank you for telling it like it is. Okay, I've come to the end of the broadcast. Everyone should stop making jokes about our town. It's enough. It was even in Nick Davis's documentary. I myself am not worried about crime in the streets. Why? Because in my neighborhood, they make house calls. Listen, only in New York, kids. Only in New York. And I'll talk to you again next Sunday. Same time, same station. Bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I'm going to tell you something that not everyone is going to like. But then not everybody likes everything I like. I am going to talk about Rolls-Royce, which is sending out repetitive stories about being on a roll. I want to tell you a personal experience of owning a Rolls-Royce. This is back when family silverware came largely from the automat in my life. And it's when I reported my day one excitement of being able to own my own Rolls Royce. That was day one. By day ten, in the Coney Island Times, which was all I could scratch up to write in back then, I reported what it was like to own a Rolls Royce. It quick laid down dead. It gave a wheeze, a cough, and it went straight to Rolls-Royce heaven. This was the second greatest day it stopped. It originally stopped on a six-lane highway with Fords, Chevys, Volkswagens, 
zooming by yelling at me, get a horse. It's salesman, so British, that next to him King Charles sounded southern, and he said, merely a minor adjustment, madam. Yeah. One month's minor adjustment later, my husband clambered back in. The ignition was off, nobody was around, and the rear windows moved up and down by themselves. Both directional signals worked simultaneously, and the rear's right side makeup mirror light lit up the mahogany desk on the left side. I mean, it's so classy. In the back seat, you had a mahogany desk. Everything looks great. Just didn't work. Also, the air conditioning in January blasted from the heating unit. The salesman, minor adjustment, madam. One month's minor adjustment later, my husband clambered back in. The ignition was off, and other things were suddenly not off. They were working. The air conditioning blasted, as I said, from the heating unit. And on a little country road straightaway, late at night, we had another problem. No other car was around. No rolls, no Chevy, no nothing. And still, our lights did not work. We couldn't see where we were going. And I said to the salesman, when I took it back for the 74th time, if the pound hadn't devalued, we wouldn't even be doing business with the likes of you. High noon, on 57th and Madison, this white dream car, license plate JA4, had a crowd around it. The hood was up. Smoke billowed from the engine. I got onto the first thing moving, a bus going downtown. <laughs> My appointment was uptown. Next, a brake lining problem and reheating situation. Also, the radio stopped. The rear license plate holder fell off. The trunk locked and the car stopped dead in traffic. If anybody doesn't believe in me, let them go check out those days and you will see my car, my Rolls Royce stopped dead in traffic. It is not so chic that even when it couldn't move me, the owners, it surged with pride as I leaned against it to summon a cab. They say the only thing that makes noise in a rolls is the clock. Yeah, that's if you don't count the owner crying. We hadn't realized it had been one of the earliest silver shadow designs, maybe even a store model. Whatever the hell it was, to tell you the truth, the thrill of owning, unless you get an asthmatic rolls like we did, dies hard. I am never, ever going to get another Rolls Royce. 
And you can tell that to anyone you listen to. And I am now going to tell you, I am now going to take a bus and go downtown and have lunch. Thank you for listening. I love you. I will be on WABC again next week, if they still let me, from 1 to 2. Bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC.